There. Okay, now it's recording. Okay, now I'll just repeat everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, the idea in software was that you could build a sort of Android copy of yourself, of a human, and then you'd extract the software from a person, maybe slicing up their brain, getting all the neural maps, uh, getting all the chemicals out. And uh, it was a problem that I was interested in. It was sort of a philosophical problem. People maybe used to debate it more than they do now. Could we, could we upload our brain out of our body? And uh, now it's sort of not such an unusual concept. But when I wrote this novel in 1979, it was not a familiar idea to most people. And uh, anyway, so that actually that book did fairly well. But as I say, it wasn't nearly enough to live on. Now, um, my children were gearing up to go to college. I got married quite young. I had my children, in, my wife and I had our children in my early 20s. So uh, I was about 40, and uh, college was looming, and I came to San Jose State. And uh, I knew a man who worked here, <coughs> Craig Smarinski. And, uh, I came out here for an interview, and I remember I met John Pierce then. I was wearing a coat and tie. He's like, why are you wearing a tie? <laughs> <laughs> why don't you wear a leather coat, like on your book jacket? <laughs> are you scared? <laughs> but, so I got the job, and then they said, well, if you, uh, it was a combined department of mathematics and computer science, and they said, well, if you teach computer science, we'll give you 10% more in your salary. And at that point, I was getting a little tired of mathematics. Uh, I, I liked the idea of doing something with physical things and being experimental. I mean, mathematics is a very, very stark, difficult field. If you have a proof and there's something wrong with it, then the proof is nothing, you know. But you have a computer program and it has a little bug in it, well, maybe the bug's a feature, you know, maybe, maybe it's doing something interesting anyway. And you can keep experimenting and turning it around, and you, you get this feedback. You're working with, with something physical. So I, I was happy to start teaching computer science, and I was just telling some people at the, at the snack section beforehand that the first course they gave me to teach was assembly language, which, and I actually literally didn't, I couldn't find the on switch on the computer they could. Around and back. <laughs> I didn't know why they kept using this word DOS. I mean, what is that supposed to be? <laughs> so I was really in deep, but I, I learned how to do it. And then uh, I remember my, there was something I was interested in called cellular automata. And uh, I'll show you some faster cellular automata in a minute. But uh, at that time, the computers were very weak, they had very little memory, uh, they, they were extremely slow. And a cellular automaton, the idea is you want to take a grid and you have a state in each of these cells. In this case, I think the state was 0 to, zero to 256, maybe. Maybe not even that many states. And uh, at the update, each cell looks at its neighbors and uh, makes its new state. This rule I'm, we're looking at here, this is the so-called rug rule. And each cell uh, takes the average of its neighbors and adds one. And when it rolls up to past 255, then it drops back to zero. So you get an effect that's a little bit like boiling, boiling water. 
because it'll heat up and then it goes to the surface and poof, gives off a bunch of heat and cools off. And this was, uh, I didn't know how to do graphics then, so this is ASCII graphics. There's this certain set of characters. There, you know, ASCII, you use the hexadecimal numbers. So these are the D brothers. There's DB, DC, DD. These are these great ASCII characters that are, you know, different shades of squares, which are uh, not a well-known thing anymore. But that was an important thing to know back then. Let me uh, minimize this for a second. Uh, and I'll show you some other cellular automata. Uh, over the years, I did a lot of cellular automata. And uh, let me open, let me make this big. And let's see if I can open a, uh, a better pattern. Uh, let's see. I guess, uh, I don't know, this one might be good, okay. And uh, so I was writing those cellular automata with my, yeah, these are good ones, with my uh, assembly language students. And then uh, I actually got a grant from the Electric Power Research Institute. And that was a good deal, because one of the things, professors are always looking at a way to not have to teach. Well, that's one of our main missions. So we want to try to get somehow get time off. You know, you get research time off. But uh, I had this grant from the Electric Power Institute, and then uh, we were writing cellular automata, and supposedly these were going to help with uh, preventing power blackouts. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so uh, and so, this is a like a very nice, cool rule. If you single step it, uh, it's a little bit jagged to look at. It's running a little too fast. This was uh, another issue. We used to have so much trouble making these things run fast that uh, uh, it was, uh, let's make it go slow. <coughs> slow, slow. <coughs> but uh, there's these nice patterns emerge. These are called uh, Belisov jabotinsky scrolls, and they emerge spontaneously in uh, In, in these rules. And they're an interesting example of, uh, let's see, how can I get back out here? Uh, let's see, I think I can do right click. No? Oh, I know, I have to get the cursor, pick and zoom, okay. Cursor. This is probably a bad thing to be doing. Okay, uh, let's just look at one other one. This is a very pretty one. Uh, and the thing that's significant about cellular automata, they're sort of models of physics, because we've got a space here. Every cell, in this case, it's more complicated than taking the average of its neighbors. We actually have two states in each cell. There's one as an activator and one's an inhibitor. And rather than being uh, discrete values, we put <coughs> continuous values in here. Uh, and uh, then this generates, it turns out that the patterns that you see on animals, the patterns you see on shells, 
are generally generated by this, this kind of process. You have these, these things called actuators and inhibitors. Alan Turing was working with these for a while. So this, uh, I really got to love these things. Now, uh, <coughs> but I'm not going to do too much more of that. Uh, let's get back into the PowerPoint. Uh, let's see. And let's go up here to uh, slideshow. And uh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. so that's me playing with uh, there's this man called Stephen Wolfram. I don't know if you all have heard about him. He wrote Mathematica. He's sort of he's an unusual person in computer science. A lot of people don't like him. He's very arrogant. He's been very successful. And uh, he, he was one of the people who was really interested in cellular autonomy. And there's a certain kind of shell you see in the South Pacific, and it has these patterns that are essentially, it's fairly, you can make a pretty good argument that those are generated by cellular automata patterns. And uh, it's sort of, I like those shells. I wrote a science fiction novel where there's some that are three feet long, and they, they eat people. These are, these cone shells are very vicious little things. They, can, they shoot out a thing like a harpoon. It's got this poison called conotoxin. It's attached to a tendril. They shoot it into a fish, and the fish right away dies, and then they go over and slime over the fish and swallow him. And that's like the most, it can be used as a pain reliever, conotoxin, but it's not something you want to take, because they have to inject it into your spinal cord, and then they have to put you in an iron lung to keep breathing while you're under the effects of it. It's not really a party drug. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of a funny thing. Now, uh, that's the cellular automata. Now, f future, I used to imagine that cellular automata would be a huge, uh, huge use of them. And uh, I still think it could happen. Like the, it would make more sense for our TV screens to be living tissues that were basically functioning like cellular automata. One thing is that um, cephalopods in particular, well, they're squid, but the cuttlefish is sort of the best at this. It can change its, its color very quickly. And you may or may not have seen videos where you put a cuttlefish over a checkerboard, and actually it'll make its, its skin be in this pattern of checkers. It can pretty much emulate any pattern. And so that's clearly, I would say, in the future. One tendency I'm going to be talking about here is that I think we're going to see chips going away I think we're going to see biocomputation taking over. Uh, people used to talk about nanotechnology, but really nanotechnology, the real nanotechnology is biology. Because biology is things are happening at the molecular scale, it's reproducing, it's making things. And there used to be this sort of misguided idea that we were going to make tiny little gears you know, and put them down a molecule size, which it's not the right way to do nanotechnology. We've got nature doing nanotechnology. Nature's very good at it. So uh, biotech is the way we want to go. So instead of a TV, you're going to have something called a squid skin. And here's a man sleeping on a squid skin. That <laughs> has pictures of some of the things he likes. Okay. Now, uh, I'm just going to jump past this now to a slightly, somewhat different topic. And uh, I'm just going to stick this in, since you all are computer scientists, many of you. Uh, and there's this idea I've had that's not as well known as I'd like it to be, about how to have, 
we've often talked about can we make uh, intelligent systems and then can we kick it up a notch if we make conscious systems, you know, computing systems that are conscious. And the game world is really, I've, often, I've always felt that computer games is really the best laboratory we have for doing computer science. You've got a whole world in it, you've got agents in there doing things, and it's really, I think it's one of the most important fields. And I used to teach a course on computer games and software engineering, and actually I had that trouble getting that course approved, but uh, I think people slowly saw the light. Wow. And then uh, the... Uh, the thing about computer game programming is it brings together every skill in computer science. You've got the graphics, you've got software engineering, you've got uh, interface. Now, uh, this is an idea, it has to do with something. There's a man called Damasio, who's written a couple of books trying to describe what consciousness is. And he has this theory that what it means to be conscious, he thinks of it like a four-step process. Uh, well, you're perceiving the world, so you've got the movie. So you've got the movie in the brain, and that's the sort of, here's a world, here's like, this is the guy that we're focusing on. That's somebody, clearly that's an enemy, and this is something he wants, okay? So this is the good thing, the bad thing. And so we put him in the movie in the brain, meaning you're aware of where everything is. Now, what we do in a computer game, this is easy for us because we don't actually have to emulate him having a vision. I mean, you can do that. That adds another interesting level. But you can just simply, he has access to a list of where, where everything in the world is. So that's the easy way to do it. Then, uh, the thing is, as well as having the movie in your head, you have to have the idea of singling out yourself. Uh, so these are sort of different. First, you can see the world, then you realize that you're in it and you're a distinguished object in the world. And that's also, that's very easy to do in computer science. You have this pointer inside your, your methods. Or, uh, so that's easily done. Then uh, the next thing is that you want to, uh, you're going to have values that you set on the things in the world. You might have a lookup table. That's the easy way to do it. Or you might have a neural net. A little bit harder, but probably richer behavior. So here we've just drawn something where there's weights. There's plus one for this and minus two for this. Then um, this is the next level of consciousness. He becomes, he not only is using these weights, but he's aware of the, the table. He's sort of aware of his lookup table. In other words, he has the ability to adjust the lookup table. This is where you, or his neural net, and this is where you get into learning, where you don't want to just stick with the lookup table that you were born with. You know, if your your score is going down and down, you're like, I've got to do something different. And so this is where he becomes, he has the ability to start tweaking his table as time was going on. So not only is he aware of himself, he's sort of, this is the level where he's sort of watching himself. He's observing his score, he's keeping tabs on well he's, how well he's doing. And according to Damasio, that's the essence of consciousness, is that you have an image of yourself in the world, but you also have, you, you go a step beyond that. You're a step, you're watching yourself watching the world. 
So it's that second, that final step, where you get into consciousness, where you're not just simply reacting. Then, this is sort of too many lines. This is empathy, okay? So not only does he, he sees his lookup table, he sees as he's reacting, he also has an image of what's going on in the other player's head. And that's, you know, that's where it gets really interesting. Anyway, so that's uh, some thoughts on games. Does anybody have a question? If you ask a question, you'll get something. Okay. Did you draw those pictures? Yes, I drew them. Anybody who asks a picture gets a free book by me. Do you have this book? Any more questions? Yeah. Easy. The cellular automata, those just look so, uh, so much like the uh, pictures you would see in like the 1960s and the mind-altering drugs, yes. movies, types of things. Did anybody ever catch on to that, that that could be? Well, I always wanted to do that. Because uh, I'm a the... 60s person. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the cellular automata to look like cool light shows. And... Uh, I've tried sometimes to get gigs where I would be running those shows at, at, at nightclubs and so on. And once I had a gig in Japan, in Tokyo, there was a club called the Gold Club. And I was running my cellular automata on a TV there. That was cool. And then I've done them at a concert, but I'm not really connected in the right. A lot of times if you go to shows, there's a whole scene of people that do videos, they call it the demo scene. They do demos at, at concerts and raves. And uh, not many people use cellular automata. I don't know why they don't. I think there's one trick in programming them that people, it's like they, they have trouble doing that step. And the, the, the key step is that you have two buffers. Actually you need three buffers for the really good one. Like you've got the, the past, the one that's now, and then the next stage. And the idea is uh, you, if you're updating this cell, you're looking at his neighbors, you can't look at your neighbors, sum them up, add one, and then put the new value in here. Because then that's going to screw up updating the next one. Because then he's going to be using the past here and the future is going to be here. So you have to fully update over to here. And then you don't have to copy. You just need to flip the pointers. You, you say, oh, wait, now this is the now buffer. And that's the future buffer. You also, uh, it's good to have a past. Because if you want to get wave motion, there's this great rule where uh, the next state is equal to, well, you basically take the present, uh, you take the now minus the past, or something like that. And that will give you waves. I can show you some of the waves. It's an incredibly simple rule, and for reasons, as I say, I still don't understand. It's never caught on. Actually, I've fully answered Marty's question now. Let me show you a wave rule. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Uh, so let's do... Uh, Let's try a wave here. Okay, and let's put in uh, a... <laughs> oh, this will do. Okay. So, can people 
people don't look at chains at all because it's just too much memory? Or I don't know. I don't know why they don't. It pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy. To, here's if you can get a 3D view of it. Uh, let's see. Can I make this work? Uh, let's try this sheet. There we go. So these are actually, these are doing waves here. And we can jack it up a little bit. Uh, there's a way to stretch this. Whoops. Uh, you can get this software for free online, by the way. Uh, it was written at San Jose State, so you can stretch this up a little bit. There. And now we can, let's ding it a few more times. So you get these nice. Oh, and this is running too slow now. So let's let's make it go fast. There, that's more like it. And then we can maybe load a better pattern. Uh, yeah, here's a good one. Okay, so let's go cursor. Now I've broken it. <laughs> okay, I don't want to be doing this. There's nothing more boring than watching somebody do this. Okay. Uh, anyway, you can download this for free from my website. Uh, and it's rudyrucker.com. Uh, it's pretty easy to find. Whoops. Okay, so let's get back into the slideshow. And, uh, okay, so that was my bit. Telepathy is another thing I'm interested in. Uh, that's, and you might say telepathy, that's like woo-woo, that doesn't mean anything. But, I mean, just think, when you're walking around with your cell phone, your pocket, you know, maybe you're wearing headphones, you're talking to your friend, they're, you know, they're, they're down in San Francisco, you know, they're in New York. I mean, you've got the mental <coughs> processes is connecting you. You're using email. It's a... Uh, we have this way of getting really miraculous, very rapid conversation with, with people that are far away. And telepathy is just how much further can we kick up the bandwidth on this? And uh, what does this picture have to do with this? Uh, well, I painted it. <laughs> but uh, let's see. What it really has to do with it is sort of an image of a. One thing, if you work with computers, you get frustrated with how hard it is to, 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 to interact with the computers, and you'd like something more direct. Now, um, <coughs> look at it this way. If you want to send somebody an image, there's uh, a couple of ways to do it. One way, you can just send them a JPEG, okay, basically pixel by pixel. And uh, that's sort of a hassle, because that's sort of a large file. If you're lucky, it might be procedural, so you could send them an algorithm, okay? Uh, like a computer graphic, a Mandelbrot set, certain kinds of things, you could just send them an algorithm and they can generate it, like those cellular automata, you send them a little algorithm. But the, the sort of the easiest way to do it is send them a hyperlink, okay? So you have the image 
on your machine, and then here's the other person, and then you just tell them, go over there and sort of look at it on my machine. And uh, that's the sort of levels of telepathy, because uh, I have some mental state and I sort of want to communicate it to you. Well, then typically what we do is it's something like this. This is sort of what language is for us. You describe what you're thinking, and you're basically giving them an algorithm for building a thought in their head. And you think about it's surprising how well language works. It's just this arbitrary system of grunts and squeals that we make, and then you have these very complicated mental states, and they've learned to evoke that. So it's, it's already sort of a miracle. We very rarely communicate a thought this way, with a JPEG style. That's just, whenever you give somebody a thousand megabytes of information just to tell them what you're thinking. Uh, well, maybe writing a novel is like that. Okay. But uh, the hyperlink thing, I think that's, that's the sort of intriguing thing. If you could find so, a way to, with protections, of course, find a way to have somebody access your mental states without you having to take them out of your brain. So I think, I think that would be an interesting future. Now, the brain does have an, an electrical aspect to it. It's, it's, so there might be some way possibly using electromagnetic waves. Yes? So I was going to and ask a question, who draw this, and then you answer. But anyway, you say that uh, you, you, know, you, you foresee, and one reason that many things didn't, didn't work out, I think, is because you are too far ahead. So it's kind of hard to do marketing. But anyway, I want to uh, uh, talk about, you said that you, if there could be a way that you know, somehow your mind or your brain wave was measured and then hyperlinked to some other places, it's already happening. Right, not in the extreme case, as very complicated, uh, right. but people are wearing these bio devices, yes. and they, it's recording everything that happening when they sleep, and a lot of things, and then they just, and again, with a protected channel, mm -hmm. upload to whatever cloud site that they want. Yes, so well, yeah, you're, you're perfectly right. It is something that, that I think we'll see more and more of it happening. Uh, one thing, certainly, <laughs> The interface, well, everybody, it's funny, I mean, seven years ago, nobody had a smartphone. Now, everybody you see tapping, you know. And that's obvious that this is not an interface that we're going to be using indefinitely. It's just, I mean, it's tiny, you're hunched over, it's, it's slow. They've tried voice recognition. It's, to some extent, that's caught on, but people feel it may be a little uneasy talking out loud in the street. Uh, so there's got to be some better way to do it. And, and the, sort of the, the one thing, if you could have something that sort of like a patch that sits on the back of your neck and is picking up your brain waves and then doing it that way, I think that would be, be a nice interface. I put that in a lot of my science fiction novels. It's sort of soft and it's like a slug that crawls under you. Uh, well, we have the patch that picks up the brain wave. We just did like a... We just did a hackathon last week on that. What we're missing is the patch that then induces those brain waves in someone else. 
Oh, look at this. I'm he like didn't get his. <laughs> the guy behind you. Oh, you got one? Who else wants a book? Yeah, make him ask a question. Oh, well, I can say a comment. All right. Um, University of Washington conducted a experiment, an experiment back in August uh -huh. where they connected a man's brain to a computer yes. and he twitched his finger. Uh -huh. And then that impulse was sent through the computer to a transcranial magnetic device and then his colleague's finger twitched. Yes, so, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, controlling yeah, somebody. You said you had a book. Do you have yeah. a question? <laughs> Come well, on. I'm just something. wondering if we are just a character in the game. If we're a character in the game? Yeah, I mean, who knows? I always have this kind of question. Uh-huh, uh -huh. But it's, well, that's the thing. Are we living in a computer simulation? Yeah. That's, I tend to think we aren't because most computer simulations suck. <laughs> and the world doesn't, you know. The thing oh, is that, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't always get what you want, but I mean, if you go and you look in the dirt, I mean, there's these little bugs there, you know. There's always more, so much more detail in the world, and it's things that in the computer they're always they, there's always a cutoff very soon. So, if another way of looking at, it, by the way, which I'll talk about in a little while, is. Uh, the world itself, you can think of the world as a computer. It's just not a silicon computer. But well, didn't, yeah? didn't you have a proof that we aren't living in a computer simulation? The, the title was The Universe is Not a Computer, but it had nothing to do with that question. <laughs> <laughs> didn't you have an opinion about this? I, um, Do you have some kind of physical argument well, against you just ask Rudy the question. <laughs> All right. Did you have a question? A comment. I asked John McCarthy once, how do we know uh, that we're not living in a computer simulation? And I never expected him to have an answer, but he did. Mm -hmm. He said, if we were, there'd be round-off air. So you should look for a round-off air. <laughs> Jaggies on the shadows and things like that. I've heard of that, too. You don't see it, so we're not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? I had a comment kind of about like, the implications of uh, uh, having devices that read your brainwaves because... Uh, I've, some neuro neuroscience studies have shown that they can predict uh, what a person will choose a few seconds before they choose it. Yes, I've heard that too. That's interesting. <coughs> Your body knows before you say it. A, a few seconds before you know you choose it. Yeah. Well, let me get back to the slides for a minute. This is just, see, they're wearing the, the things I call obbies, the, the, tech, the telepathy thing. And there's an interesting thing that's going to happen that we'll have to be a little worried about. You know when you point a video camera at the video monitor, you get this, this funky regress. You ever seen people do that? You get a hall of mirrors, if you twitch it, you get chaotic patterns. So this, these people are each looking into each other's minds and seeing each other, seeing the other. See, that's him and that's her. That's him and that's her. So it's an endless regress, yin-yangs. When I look at this, I'm reminded of these sort of experiments where they had um, grid patterns um, for blind people, and they will like poke the grid pattern of, of from a camera or something, and they can uh, sort of learn to recognize what they're looking at by the poking of grid patterns on their, their oh, I know sensitive piece of tissue. For so, blind people. So you can imagine that you don't have to even do anything particularly clever, like hooking into the neurons in the brain or anything. Mm -hmm. You just have like this way that people can transmit 
these poking things on the back of their, like probably you don't want back of the neck, you want a place with lots of nerve in there. Yeah, my wife pokes me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old, I forget things a lot. What, what else do we have here? Biotech. Okay, uh, this is one of my personal, something I'm really interested in. I wrote a novel about this called Franken the Elixir. It's set in the year 3003, and there, there aren't any more. I always feel like the chip's going to go away. I mean, we don't use things made of gears, you know? And the chip's only been around for 50 years, you know? Not all that long. And humans have this great ability to, to forget that time changes, to, to forget history. I mean, things do change, you know? We're not going to keep, things aren't going to be the same. Most of you, you younger computer science majors, in your own life, you're going to see things change really very substantially, the kinds of things that you're working with. Um, that's why we make you learn a little bit of theory, as well as languages. <laughs> because uh, the languages are going to change, the devices are going to change. Now, uh, I like this idea of the biotech future. This is just sort of one image I have. I think house trees will be very big. You'll have this seed about the size of a pizza. You'll push it into the ground, and you'll put really a lot of water on it. Lots of water. And it'll grow. And uh, the tree will have squid skin on the inside walls, so you can see video displays. It'll get metal out of the soil, so it'll have you know, enough metal in it to have antennas. Uh, for plumbing, it'll have you know, like little things that bulge out that'll fill up with water, or things that, that function as toilets. Um, and then you, know, you can get these wing-like things, sort of like a, a stingray you put on your back, fly around. So this is, I think, this is something we probably really will see happen. We won't see it happen, but within a thousand years, I mean, look at how things have changed since the year 1000. Yeah. So I want to comment a little bit on that you foresee that chips probably would go up, go away. Yes. Um, so I so in computer networks, uh, chips or electron, electronics mm -hmm. uh, actually is a bottleneck. So we have optical fiber that can run like, you know, potentially terabits per second. Mm -hmm. And then you come to this electronic switch that mm -hmm. can only go maybe gigabits per second. That's so a good point. So there is a big yeah. bottleneck there. Yes. And people are uh, working on pure optical switches. So yes. not electronic, just pure optical. Yes. And so that it would not be a bottleneck there. Mm -hmm. So there is really great potential, different media instead of Well, all sorts of physical things can be computers, yeah. Probably you wouldn't want, I don't know if you could use an organism for the, the switch or not. Organisms tend not to be that fast. Uh, but yeah, certainly something more on the nature of a, a light computer or a quantum mechanical computer. Uh, another thing about, let's see, whoops, that's the wrong button. Uh -oh. Okay, uh, and this, these are some drawings I did. There's a novel, uh, a book I wrote called Saucer Wisdom. It was about you know, predictions about the future, and this doesn't have much to do with anything, but these are, they're growing knives. See, they're like corn plants, but they, they get the metal out of the ground and they form this knife blade, and then you have this sort of stock. Uh, doesn't have much to do with anything. Uh, 
here's a city that's grown with biocomputation. You know, I like the idea of the buildings just growing, all sorts of weird shapes. This is something we're already seeing thanks to, because you can, because we have computer graphics, you can do AutoCAD, things don't have to be squares, you know, you can have things that are weird hyperboloids, even weirder, you know, cubic cortex surfaces. So there's, uh, things can be a lot more interesting. They used to imagine that when things became computerized, they would be boring, because all people knew was that the hulking boxes in the basements. And then we see, actually, we can build much more fanciful things thanks to uh, computer-aided design. So, so, so when did you draw this, Rudy? Do you remember? When I drew this? Yeah, or this. It says uh, 2001. See, we watched this movie, like, Chance of a Netball. What's it called? Chance of the Cloudy with chance of the Cloudy with chance of the ball. And so, mm -hmm. so you were, you were like. Well, I'm waiting for the movie of my book. <laughs> yeah. Stan Lee is, you know, his stuff is getting out there quite, quite a bit. I just, I was kind of wondering, when is a Ware series? Well, my best known novels are what he calls the Ware series. There was software, then there was wetware. And that's then I got into the idea, wetware is your DNA, uh, but also the chemicals that live in your body, the biotransmitters. And so they got into programming that, and then they got, uh, basically in software they built intelligent robots, and then the robots to sort of get even, they learned wetware so they could start programming people, and they could put their personalities into people. So it works both ways. And then there was freeware, which is largely set in Santa Cruz. It's sort of a zonked out novel. Yeah. <laughs> it's where uh, it's where we have, well, the idea there is one way to travel from world to world, instead of, we have this idea now that we might put our meat body in this metal can and then fly for a thousand years to another world, you know, while we're asleep. It's not very practical. It's sort of like, in, in, in the ancient times, they would say, well, maybe we'll sail a ship to the moon, you know? Or maybe we'll, we'll take a magic carriage. I mean, I think the chances of flying there in a metal spaceship are equally unrealistic. A better way to do it would be to encrypt yourself. You know, zip. Zip yourself. <laughs> get your wetware, get your software. Just zip it into this file, and then send it as a very energetic cosmic ray. It has a lot of information on it. And then the one catch there is uh, there has to be a receiver out there somewhere. You know, so it has to, that's a little bit tricky. So uh, you might just hope that if it hits something sufficiently computationally dense, then it would, able to, it would be diverse enough to be able to decrypt itself. So that's what happens in freeware. There's these things like cosmic rays. And there are these robots in there that are now made of sort of soft plastic. They're like three-dimensional cellular automata. And when one of these rays hits the one, the ray unzips itself and then takes over the, the piece of plastic, and then the alien is there. And so that's freeware. It's, you didn't order it. You didn't really want it, you know, but here it is. So the aliens visit the Earth there. And then in the last one, realware, um, people find a way to directly program matter. But yeah, there's been talk for years of making those into movies. At one point, I was involved with some people in Hollywood for about five years. 
and they went through 10 scripts for software. And the writers would get $100,000 for writing the scripts. And I was like, let me write a script. The scripts <laughs> suck. You've know? done 10 of them. No, you wouldn't know how. <laughs> Here, we'll give you $5,000. If you'll just keep quiet for a year. But, so it didn't work out, but it might, yeah. What, there's a big mania for making movies of Philip K. Dick's novels and stories. But, uh, so you have to wait until they've made a movie of everything Philip K. Dick ever wrote. <laughs> Unfortunately, he wrote a lot, so they've made like 20 movies of his stuff, you know. But there's still 300 of them to go. <laughs> uh, or maybe they'll get tired of it someday. But it's not something that I, I'm hung up on waiting for anymore. Why don't you make your own movie? Yeah. <laughs> Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> so the, one of the last things I want to say a, a little bit about, how about another question? I've got some books to give away here, come on. What's quantum computation? Oh, you have all my books anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants a copy of Freck and the Elixir? Oh, you already got a book. Oh, okay. Who wants a copy? Okay. Yeah. So actually, I have a question too. Um, in the background. So, what, what do you think of Kurzweil's singularity? My read on it is it basically is it's just yet another form of artificial intelligence, and that he won't have to live long enough to be accountable to his prophecy. Um, but also that it's kind of passe in the sense that comp computational devices direct us in very discrete ways in our everyday life. Um, so in a sense, they are embedded. I mean, if we're walking around with a cell phone in our hand, that's embedded. Um, we certainly didn't do that 10 years ago. And they're, they're guiding us, directing us towards places and people, and can actually lead us to our dads in the event of like texting while driving. Um, so in a sense, they are in control. Um, so, I, okay. Yeah, so it's really an AI question and failures of AI ultimately uh, to mimic the human brain. Um. Well, you're sort of, there's a, a several issues you're raising here. One is there's this idea that people like called the singularity. And there's this idea that computers will get to our level, and then they'll start designing even better computers, and there'll be this exponential increase. And uh, then there's the other idea that computers might take over the world. Well, that's already happened. You know, you spend all your time taking care of your computer, you know, it's upgrading it, whatever, whatever it needs, you know, it's amazing. It's, they used to say they would be labor-saving devices, but uh, you ever looked at an old movie of people in the 1950s and they don't have any computers and they're so relaxed, you know, they're hanging around, looking at the window, taking walks, but uh, it's a mixed blessing. But, uh, the whole singularity thing, there's a group of people in Silicon Valley, they call themselves post-humanists, and they've sort of made uh, something in a way it's like a cargo cult or a religious cult out of the idea of singularity. There's something called the Singularity Institute, and I mean they do teach some interesting courses, but it's this sort of millennial fervor that the end of the world's going to come and the computers are going to change everything. And I think we could say in a way, the singularity already happened. We sort of didn't notice. It was, when you fall into a black hole, there's no clear-cut moment when you're, when you're across the event horizon. You sort of don't exactly notice that it happens. But uh, 
that's how it was with the computer singularity. We're, we're deep into it now. And uh, I wrote a novel. I got so tired of hearing about the singularity, I wrote a novel called Post-Singularity. And uh, like, what? suppose that it already happened. For a while, science fiction writers had trouble. They're saying, well, we can't write about the future. We can't see what happens after the singularity. And then, uh, then I, I slowly came to realize it's just keep just piling on the BS and keep a straight face. You know, it's just more, more interesting stuff. That's a book, by the way, you can get for free. Uh, a lot of my books you can get for free. We still have some I should give out here. Let's, let's give a few of these out. Who, who wants a book? All right, here you go. You take one and give one to the guy behind you. Got a book? Yes, please. Okay. How about over here? Okay, I see two people there. What's with your ladies? Okay. Okay, there you go. Now, those two in the back row, if you want you to, to say, share these. Okay. I didn't bring any more. You can get a lot of my books for free, I should tell you. Uh, let me quickly jump here. Uh, I made a, a number of my books I put out as uh, what they call Creative Commons. So these are links, readyrucker.com, Lifebox, Wares, Post Singular. <coughs> you can get all three of these books for free, assuming that you're willing to read an ebook instead of a paper book. Um, almost out of time. Let me just say a little more about the very last thing I wanted to mention. Quantum computation. I used to be uneasy about quantum computation because it's hellishly difficult to understand the articles about it. And then somebody said something and that just clicked and made it easy for me. They said whenever light is hitting a piece of matter and it's bouncing it back, the matter is doing a quantum computation. And I was like, oh. So basically, that's just what it's a way of talking about what an object is doing. It's always doing a quantum computation. One way to think about it, you look at a rock, you say that rock isn't doing jack. Okay, the rock, nothing going on there. But if you think about what's inside there, you've got, I don't know, maybe septillion atoms in there, and they're all connected by these little sort of van der Waals forces or electrical forces, and they're all vibrating. It's like you, you take whatever, you know, quadrillion or septillion, whatever it is, that many points, you put springs between them all, and it's vibrating. So it's fairly clear that that can compute anything that's possible to compute. To be a universal computer, the bar is actually rather low. If you can add and multiply, you can, in principle, do any, any computation. So those are doing these intricate computations. So we could even imagine you could have a mind living inside this stone. The only trouble is the input-output. That's where telepathy is going to help us. You know, we need the, to get into the physical computation that's taking place. Now this book, I wrote a book called The Life Box, The Seashell and the Soul. That was one reason I retired. I wanted to write this long book about the meaning of computation. And that again, you can get as a PDF online. So uh, there's a word, and I wrote a couple of you. I gave a novel called Hylozoic. And that's a real word in Wikipedia. If it's in Wikipedia, you know it's real. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's the philosophical point of view that all matter, including the universe as a whole, is in some sense alive. And that's, that's a notion that was more popular, oh, before about 1900, when sort of the Industrial Revolution hit, machines kind of took over. 
But it's an interesting way to think that objects might be alive. Now, I know some of you probably have to go somewhere at four, so maybe at this point I'll wrap it up. Yeah? I already have a book, so this is actually a genuinely interesting question. Uh, what do you think of uh, Kurt Gödel, and does his work uh, figure into your Oh, well, Kurt Gödel, he's my guru. When I was a grad student, I got to meet him once, and it was uh, one of the high points in my life. He's uh, the most intelligent human being I've ever met. Um, Stephen Wolfram is pretty close, but Gödel was more. So Gödel, well, he proves in some interesting things about robot consciousness. Basically, some of his work and Turing's work is related. And to make a long story short, you can have intelligent robots. It's just that you won't be able to understand the program. And I used to think, well, that means it's impossible. But then now we know about neural nets. We say, well, I mean, if you have a neural net with, you know, you have a thousand neurons, a million neurons, you really can't. You trained it. It's evolved. It's doing something. But in a sense, you don't really know what the program is. And uh, so we can bring into being systems as intelligent as ourselves, but we won't ever be able to fully grasp how they operate. And so that's, a, that's sort of a nice... We do that already by having children. So um, it's not so different. So it's great to be back at San Jose State. Great to see you all. Thanks. Yeah, I, I have time. If you have to leave, don't be embarrassed. Yeah, if you want me to sign your book, I can so, so you said there's computation going on inside a rock. Yes, I would say that. Um, well, well, actually, you said there could be. There, well, yeah, I would say any physical process can be regarded as a computation in the sense that it's... Uh, more or less deterministic. I mean, for a classical animation, isn't there like an energy cost? I mean, there you've got all sorts of entropy considerations if you're actually going to do anything interesting. Uh, okay, that's an interesting point, which uh, it's a difficult point. You're a physicist. Uh, there's one in every crown. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> but that, that's, that's, that's worth thinking about. Can you have a... Usually to say a computation, then you have to sort of you can have reversible computations, and then there's not so much of yeah, right. I guess that would be one way out of it. Okay. Yeah. I guess my interesting computations, I'm yeah. not thinking yeah. reversible. Yeah, 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 reversible's not necessarily interesting. Is it, is it true that you have a character in one of your books, Hacker and the Ants, that's based on Dr. Pierce? <laughs> well, I would say based on his Are you such a character? Well, John has a, I don't know, John's an inspiring person. <laughs> there is a character called Ben Bree, who is his, I think he's his boss in, in Hacker Dance. This may be a little bit reminiscent of Professor Pierce. <laughs> that, was a, that was my Silicon Valley novel. That's, that's, I think that was, a, that was a pretty good one. It's not as well known as it should be, but it's the hacker and the ants. I went uh, and worked for Autodesk for four years while I was teaching here. I got some leave and then went to Autodesk. And that was when I, I really learned a lot about computer science there. And, uh, and then their stock price went down and they laid off some people. That's an experience many of you all have a chance to enjoy. 
<laughs> over your careers. And, uh, but then I had fun writing a novel about that. Well, and also, I think, uh, didn't you have a character, Mathematicians in Love, that was, I thought I recognized myself in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Their real business is auto care, but for a while they had so much money they didn't care about it. So they said, let's do a popular science series. So we did a product on cellular automata, and then we did a book, and this would be a program and a book, a program on chaos, accompanying James Blake's book, Chaos. And then towards the end, I was working on something there called uh, Artificial Life Lab. And then uh, when I was when I was laid off there, they said, well, you can keep that software, we don't want it. And then I got a company called uh, Wait, the Wait Group to publish it. So there's a book and some software, and you can find, all of this software is, you can download it from my webpage. Uh, you can go to rudyrucker.com and you can find a way to find it. Yeah? Um, so you said earlier in your talk that language was a way of transmitting information that we can't, you know, we don't have a better way to transmit. So do you think that at a certain point, maybe after, uh, hypothetical tele telepathy, do you think that the need for individuals to exist will be uh, non-existent? Because since we're so efficiently transmitting information that everyone will just be collective yes, consciousness. Well, that's an interesting theme. It's the sort of idea of the hive mind. And often we view, there's sort of a tradition in science fiction to view, if you meet some aliens and they're a hive, then people are, ah, you know, this is terrible. But we already are a hive, in a way. I mean, like an ant by itself you know, can't live. And a human being, if they, you were just alone, I mean, everything you know, you learn from other people, all your skills you learned, most of the things you consume are made by people. So we are, we are a hive. But we have this feeling that there's this certain private part, which is shrinking every day. Uh, but, uh, but if you had telepathy, then you know, there, you, you know, there's lots of scenarios you can imagine. That, that's what science fiction is good for. You say, well, let's, let's sort of play with this. Could, could it be a nice thing to be in a telepathic hive? It's easy to imagine bad things. You know, you're getting spam in your dreams. and <laughs> People are watching your every thought. But uh, there, there might be some, the idea of merging in and feeling empathy with the people around you, that's sort of a positive thing. Speaking of telepathy, that painting you had on telepathy, that there was that torus with a circular cross section. Yeah. I guess that there's some mathematical manifold idea in there, but what, what were you thinking with that, Taylor? Um, well, that was actually meant to be the cover. I wrote a novel, my first science fiction novel was a book called Space Time Donuts. And uh, I, I painted this as a cover for that. That book was reissued uh, not so long ago. One of the things, if you're a writer, it's, it's a constant struggle to keep your books in print. Uh, so you, it's something you have to spend an hour or two almost every day thinking about. And uh, e-books are good because then you can, if you get something into an e-book, it's sort of safe, it'll be in, it's sort of in print. But uh, 
course, ebook standards are going to be changing all the time. So even there, it's a bit of a hassle. But what was the connection to telepathy of that particular geometry? Oh, because there's a there's a there's a cable connecting the guy's head to that that torus. So sometimes I sneak in a picture that's for another purpose, and I claim it's illustrating something else. Okay, it's not. But I thought it sort of reminded me. It's a nice picture, so yeah. that's why I was there. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of the Three Body? Uh, it's a trilogy written by a Chinese uh, science fiction writer. It's called Three Body? Three Body, yeah. That's, you know, I don't know very much about Chinese science fiction. I heard somebody, I had a, a friend who's a game designer, and he said in China they almost don't have the notion of science fiction. Oh, this is the best one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even if I'm not a fan of uh -huh. science fiction, but I'm just falling in love with his story. Well, why don't you send me a link to? Yeah. Okay. I'm Rudy at RudyRocker.com. Yeah, he, he has a very big, uh, huge fan uh -huh. in China for this. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, my friend. He said mostly the the computer games in China were usually set in uh, some sort of mid medieval time. There's sort of knights, uh -huh. a certain period. No, I don't think so. This one is about, yeah, it writes a lot about computation, too. Uh -huh. It's quite cool. It's set in the future. Yeah, and it talks about telepathy and mm -hmm. things it, like In English, is it translated? I don't think there is an yeah, English version yet, but it's quite popular in China. I would like to see that. Well, you could translate it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. So maybe we'll wrap it up one more. Do you ever uh, consider it chaos? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you want me to send it. But, uh, so where, where are you at now? Yeah, actually, quite soon.
Yeah. <laughs> 